0: May you be born in interesting times. That's the curse. And it's also translated as, May you be born in easy times and peaceful times. But you get the gist. There's a Tibetan prayer where the person is just beseeching the guru, Please bestow upon me the hardships that will awaken this closed down heart. You know? and the shamans go on the vision quests and they're really inviting the um, difficult entities or spirits to come and encounter them. And any tradition we look at, we find this theme um, in the mystical and experiential level of this willingness to open the doors to the shadow side, to what's difficult. Each of the wisdom traditions values the challenging or difficult aspects of living, and in each of them there are ways to work with them. Last week, when I was in uh, California, I was meeting with a group of Vipassana teachers that I've been meeting with for a number of years, and we were doing a kind of sharing process, we were talking about well, what's been difficult over these last years, what are our edges in personal life and in practice, and um, people were sharing about bodily things going down, and parents dying, and relational stuff, Real, very open group of people. And with each we were also talking about how it's affected us, how it's affected us as people and in our teaching. And it was just quite inspiring to, with each example, see how uh, the person kind of coming against this wall or this edge or this challenge really served to soften their heart and to really uh, reveal some of the truths of the past and sometimes when we're in the midst of it we don't value what's difficult in that way but I'd say probably each of you here can look back through your life and sense the times that have been just absolutely put you like right on that spot of you know I can't handle this and then afterwards how much we learn about who we are and about what this life's about. One friend was describing a, she had gone to Thailand and studied for six weeks in a monastery there with her husband. And she described for herself how much she learned from it. But she was describing her husband and saying, he got enlightened. I mean, he was just glowing and loving and anything he said, he was quieter, but whatever he said was this little pearl that, you know. And then she said, and so they got home and it lasted for six weeks until he saw his mother. The story goes on to say there's ways in which some of the experience he touched there, he was able to bring into all the personal history and ghosts that he had with his mother, and that probably his learning curve was even steeper when he got home, that his guru mother taught him more. But isn't it so that where it's challenging, we start to wake up? So in the classical Buddhist literature, the forces that are difficult are called the hindrances. And I described them two weeks ago, and I'm going to review them a little today, but tonight's a little more of a how-to talk, you know, how do we work with them? Uh, I don't even use the word hindrances in my own inner psyche because it's so much more that they're these universal forces that are natural and they're opportunities to wake up and they're the grounds of waking up in fact our realization and our opening and touching into our true compassion comes when we relate to them not because we've pushed them aside so The hindrances in classical times were described as five in five categories and these challenging forces that we can look at really fit nicely into them. One is the area of clinging, of grasping, of attachment. The second area is aversion, it's the don't want it, you know, push it away kind of mind. There's sloth and torpor. That's that sleepy, lazy mm, energy that comes over us at times. Anybody have that one tonight? I'll try to speed up my talk if you do. (laughs) Then there's restlessness. That feeling of wanting to just jump out of our bodies and not be in the midst of whatever this is. And the last is doubt. So, tonight we'll look at each of them and talk about the ways that we can relate wisely to them and have it serve awakening, have it serve opening. Now, with each, the essence of wise practice, and we'll come back to it again and again, is to bring a caring, present awareness to what's happening. But they have different flavors, so let's let's look at each one. The general guideline is to neither be possessed by these energies, lost inside them, or to resist them. Neither, neither. Okay, so clinging, clinging mind. As I described um, a couple of weeks ago, wanting mind attaches itself to pleasure. You know, that's whenever there's pleasure, there's I want more, and there's a clinging that goes. There's not a capacity to simply enjoy and let it come and let it go, but rather there's a glomming on quality. And with wanting mind, we have this idea that if only X, Y, and Z, then we'd be happy. And most of us have a belief like that 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 we operate off of, and we might even know it's not true on some deep spiritual level, but it's it's our modus operandi, we, we somehow or other think that if only we could get a certain amount done, or have the right partner, or get a certain job, or whatever it is, if only that, then around the corner we'd be able to just live our lives and we'd be okay. So there's if only mind. And it's a very daily thing. It's Sometimes on a daily level, it's if only I could take a nap or, you know, go get an ice cream or whatever it is. And sometimes it's got a light touch, but often there's a lot of grasping and you can feel yourself get small around it. I read a story about a guy who worked for Snapples. And he loved Snapples, he loved the drink, and it said that he drank one to two cases a day. <laughs> and then he got fired. <laughs> and so what he did was he dressed himself up in a Snapples outfit, and he hijacked a truck, he stole it, <laughs> he took off with it, and it had 50,000 cases of Snapples <laughs> on it. <laughs> so he took off, and this is full-blown grasping, I mean, this guy was addicted. And That's just one weird story of it and we all have our little mini stories of how we hoard and how we grasp and how we protect. So what to do? We see it in sitting. As you just sit quietly in any given sitting, you can see the appearance of wanting mind. Wanting mind comes when we're planning how to have more of this and less of that and fantasizing. We're often those thoughts. Wanting mind when we try to shift positions and want it to be different. We see it again and again. So, how to work with wanting mind? The first, and this is the first part with pretty much any force that grabs us, is recognition, is knowing it's happening. Right this moment, wanting mind, ah, wanting mind. Gurdjieff describes it that you can't get out of prison until you realize you're in prison. You know? And wanting mind has an imprisoning quality to it. In a moment of recognizing it, we're not so engulfed. We're not living inside the identity of wanting. We're not the grasper. It's just grasping is happening in this bigger space of awareness. For me, I can relate to the metaphor a lot of being in a plane, and when you're inside a cloud it seems like the whole world is cloud, until you wake up and go, oh, cloud, cloud. and Just recognizing cloud means you know also there's sky, and that's part of your awareness too. So that's the first step, is to know wanting mind, and then to pay attention. What's this like? We don't explore the energy of wanting much, we're so caught in the story if we could be aware of the story of wanting ah, so that, if only mine, that'll make me happy and then drop into our body what does it feel like, this moment, to be in wanting mine? what's the energy pattern? what's the feeling of fear or clenching or excitement? is it pleasant? is it unpleasant? you can try right now, some of you might have easy access to this to sense something you really, really are wanting these days And if it's not recent, to sense something that you've had great craving for in the past. And see if you can use your imagination to go inside wanting mind. What's it like when you're really wanting something? You even mentally repeat, I want, I want, and sense what the body does desire pulls us out of the moment and into our imagination and there's tenseness for many there's a sense of leaning forward you can stop thinking about it if you'd like (laughs) the thing about wanting mind is there's a lot of enchantment with it when we're in wanting mind we don't want to leave we want to get what we want so there's not always a motivation to get into a wise or meta-perspective. It's also easy to judge that we're in it. In this culture, and for many of us, the way we're brought up, there's a message of don't want, don't need, don't be grabby. Do you know what I mean? It's got a shame kind of feeling to it, to, to really get hooked on things. We're embarrassed, so that's why we go, you know, we do our wanting in the closet. So, part of mindfulness practice is to recognize wanting mind and then to notice if there's added on to that some shame, some judging. Joseph Goldstein, when he teaches noting of wanting, he says, note wanting mind wanting. Now there's a real difference between thinking my wanting mind and wanting mind wanting. It's a little less personal, isn't it? Just the energy of wanting coming up. I'll tell you a story of one of my great tangos with wanting mind, and I tango with it every day, but I remember one of my, I think it was my first or second meditation retreat right before I went into retreat I was just getting involved in a new relationship and I was really excited and pretty infatuated and pretty entangled in the whole thing and I thought, oh, a meditation retreat, I'll just go and I'll just open to much deeper and bigger spaces. So I go off to sit, and I'd forgotten how when you get quiet you can get barraged by everything you're addicted to. So my mind just got totally caught, and I was fantasizing and fantasizing. And for the first two days I was wanting mine, wanting mine, but then I started panicking. Like, am I going to spend the whole retreat, this retreat I've been like cherishing, having ahead of me? And what does that mean about me as a meditator or a spiritual person? I'm just going to live the whole retreat in fantasy. You know? So I started panicking, and then I got really ashamed because you know, it, just, it was just a big indicator of being a graspy, needy person. And Anyway, I was miserable. So I went into an interview, and Carol Wilson was the person I was interviewing with, and she said to me, what is it you're adding on to just wanting mind? And in that moment of what are you adding on, I realized all the layers of shame and blame and judgment. And she just reminded me how any season, any weather system that comes up is an opportunity to learn about the nature of the weather, to really discover what is this. So I went back to the cushion and walking and and stuff kept coming up that I had a whole different frame. It was rather than being oppressed by these thoughts, it was oh, just more weather and interested. And in that there was more space. So what seemed to happen more and more, as these different waves of wanting would come up, is it was just waves of energy. There was an aliveness to it, and it lost the storyline. You know, I didn't have to hold so tightly to the storyline, I just felt aliveness and connectedness, which is underneath wanting mind anyway this longing for connection. The suffering of being caught in wanting mind is that we believe this story about the self that's deficient, that needs something more to be complete, and isn't okay as it is. There's nothing wrong with wanting, it's just that if we're identified with it, we become small, we become a victim of it, and we become dissatisfied with how this moment is. Does that make sense? It makes us smaller. There's a sense that we can win or lose at any moment, which is never comfortable. So the practice is to open out of the story of it to feel the energy in the body of of wanting, and to not take it so personally, it's just a universal force. A friend of mine who's um, a psychotherapist has some great cartoons on her door that I think makes everybody more comfortable when they see them, and in one of them it had a picture of this mouse who's a therapist and he's sitting in his mouse hole, and outside the hole is this big cat that's slumped looking really dejected and the mouse is saying to his client don't worry fantasies about devouring the doctor are perfectly normal (laughs) (laughs) the potential teaching our wisdom that can emerge when instead of being lost in the story of what we want, instead of being reactive and grasping, we just sit and pay attention, are we see it comes and goes. We see impermanence. It comes and goes. We see that it's not so personal. When we get under the story, it's just an energy. And we can sense how it's an energy that many, many beings experience. Probably every being that's in embodied form we discover a natural aliveness or well-to-live that's underneath it. But just to say, it's a powerful force, it's enchantment. When we're in it, we don't really want wisdom, we just want what we want. So there's some, what the Buddha described as skillful means in working with these energies, and I'd like to kind of review them with you for a few moments. One of them is behaving in a moderate way it's the middle way that if the wanting leads to eating too much or consuming drugs or grasping onto another person behaviorally or sleeping too much if there's a too much to just try to have our behavior a little more in the middle zone and then pay attention to the craving to have it be more but not react that's why so many times People that are really caught in addiction are told that they'll never be able to do the healing until they actually stop the behavior and just pay attention to the rising and passing of the craving. Another skillful means that the Buddha taught was reflecting on impermanence, reflecting on the truth that whatever we're wanting comes and goes, it's very temporary. This new car will not stay new this person we love will come and go, this body that we're trying to keep young will not stay young, to really reflect on impermanence. It's beautifully done in the Carlos Castaneda books I read you from uh, one quote from Don Juan, the shaman, death is our eternal companion, It is always to our left and at an arm's length. It has always been watching you, and it always will until the day it taps you on your left shoulder. The thing to do when you're impatient, wanting, craving, turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you just catch a glimpse of it or even the feeling that your companion is watching you. isn't it true that our day-to-day grabbing and grasping and preoccupation falls away when we remember the bigger picture that this life is short that we cherish these moments and we don't live them if we're holding on to wanting something to be different one of the great um, ways to witness the Dharma is around um, people seeing the cherry blossoms in these last few days. I was with millions of others over at Kenwood, and um, just to watch how people that might normally be preoccupied like I am and not paying attention, paying enormous attention to the colors and textures and smells, and because we all knew it was for such a brief time. when we know it's brief and this life is brief we pay more attention and the trick is to be able to sense it's brief but not hold on rather pay the kind of attention that allows it to come and allows it to pass so the skillful means the middle way to behave in a moderate way and then watch the tendencies to grasp to reflect on impermanence Then the third to mention is when we're caught in a preoccupation, when we're kind of addicted to something, to ask that question, what is the deepest want? What's the longing underneath this? To connect with our deepest intent. It's very, very powerful that all addiction, every type of grasping, we find underneath that a very deep longing to just be alive and be in love. And when we can connect with what's deepest, it frees up the grasping quality around some of the um, substitute places that we seem to hold out of habit. Ramakrishna writes, we long, what we long for is the heart that is longing. It's not outside us. We long to drop into our true nature, to live in a free way, but we mistakenly identify what we want as something on the outside. So to reflect on our deepest longing. To summarize with wanting mind, recognize, ah, wanting, wanting. Feel fully, drop under the story, be with fully. Really discover the nature of that energy. Now with aversion, which is really just the flip side of wanting mind, if wanting mind is, I want this, aversion is, I don't want this. I don't like how it is. Both are rejecting the present moment in some way, not enough or too much. Again, we recognize or note that aversion is there. Hatred, disliking, judging, fearing, anger, it's all pushing away, not liking how it is. There's a flag usually that goes with any aversive state and that is something's wrong with this. Something's wrong with me, something's wrong with this feeling, something's wrong with how it is. So our practice is to notice that's going on and to have the courage to feel fully in our body how it is, which is hard, because the very nature of aversion is we don't want to feel it, right? So it seems counterintuitive, but to drop into the body, to feel what's there. To not resist, to not be possessed. Here's an example that if we habitually reenact anger, all we do is deepen the habit of anger formation. If instead we feel the anger and just feel it fully but don't act out of it, not suppressing, not acting out, it gives us a chance to drop under and see what's true. Now, that does not mean to never express anger, it just means that we have the capacity to feel it fully in our body without being a slave behaviorally. I'll tell you a story that touched me a lot, uh, working with a man a couple of years ago who was dealing with a huge hatred for his father, and there'd been a lot of abuse. And he was also meditating and coming to retreats, and his feelings of hatred were so incongruent with his sense of what it meant to be a spiritual person that he just would barely acknowledge it. He was just would feel it as anger and then push it away and say, and say, you know, yeah, he was mean then, but look how much he's changed, and he just could not let himself have that hatred and that anger. So, so much of the therapy was to just open to and not judge himself, just let it be there, just to feel it. And when he gave it room, underneath all that hatred was just pure hurt, as you can imagine. And it was his capacity to be with his own hurt that softened his heart. He came into a more intimate place with his own being, which allowed him to have more room for his father, still keeping certain boundaries because there were things he couldn't trust. But he had to go through the process of letting himself feel hatred, letting himself feel that anger. He had to let himself mentally go ouch this hurts and we don't do that sometimes we're not very tolerant of our own pain and there's a real power to just pausing and going ow! just noticing it with that fullness of awareness now as I mentioned mostly we want it to go away so rather than sitting down feeling the pain fully our tendency is to try to deny, suppress, repress, depress, all the presses away. So it's really challenging to be right with what's there. We do sometimes in Vipassana what's called a bargaining mind, where we know that the practice is to be with, so we kind of say, all right, I'll observe you if you'll go away. You know, I'll watch this fear. But it knows, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, it doesn't work. Bargaining mind doesn't work. There needs to be a real courage just to stay, not to try to get rid of. Because whatever's there just shifts forms. We're still a slave to it because if we're running we still feel identified with the victim. To stay put, to pay attention. If we're in conflict with another person and we're not feeling open-hearted, to not feel open-hearted but to stay. To stay, to feel what's true, to be honest. And there's a magic to just paying attention, paying attention, and gradually in that space of mindful awareness there's room for our heart to reopen. But it takes patience and it takes time. Another story. This is uh, written by a woman about her relationship with her daughter. With all the shrill force she can muster, my seven-year-old daughter screams at me, I hate you, you never listen to me. Then she stomps upstairs and slams the door to her room. I know from experience that she's thrown herself on her bed to cry. I take a minute to indulge the part of me that is angry and that hates her right back for all her rebuffs, for her rejections, for making me feel inadequate as a parent, for never regarding me as omnipotent even when she was a toddler. When I finish my silent rant, I climb up the stairs to her room and knock on her door. No one can come in, she yells. It's only me, I say. can I come in? I hear her unlock the door and then fling herself back on her bed before I can enter. I go in quietly and sit on the edge of her bed. Though her face is angry, I can see the hurt underneath. I pat my thigh and she slides onto my lap. I place my arms around her and tell her, I'm sorry, sweetie, I'm so sorry, I'm ready to listen now. This practice is a practice of intimacy. We can't be intimate with each other, with our children, our lovers, our family, our friends, unless we can be intimate with the anger and the fear and the hurt all that's underneath there it's not bad stuff it's just energy asking for attention and i love that story because she first had to sit and be with her own anger and hatred and resentment and if we take the time to do that we can be with and see the hurt of another and we usually can't see it because we haven't been with our own sometimes it's too much though and i think it's important in these talks about working with the difficult forces, to not just um, propose that we go out and get that courage and just sit with it, because sometimes that's not wise. If, it's, if we've been abused, if it's too extreme a wave and there's not a container for it, then it's skillful and wise to take a break, to know how to reconnect with some sense of perspective, to seek out some safety with others to learn to breathe and to sip tea and get massages and take walks and do whatever it takes to reestablish the balance so that we can then open our being to what is there. So one skillful means is just that, to shift our attention. If it's too much, if the fear is too much or the anger has just been gripping us for too long, to shift our attention, to go to the breath or to nature or to whatever it is that can give us again the perspective and the peace and the humor that we can deal with it. Probably one of the most profound ways to shift our attention is what the Buddha described as invoking the opposite force. So if we're in a great amount of fear or anger, to then invoke a love or a kindness that we can bring to that fear and anger. Now just to make it clear now, metta or loving kindness doesn't work if you're really angry at somebody and you right away try to throw out all these phrases of loving-kindness to that person, you know, sometimes maybe, but there's a missing step there. And that is that when we're in that state, we first need to pay attention to the anger and to the hurt that's underneath within our own beings so the practice is to offer kindness, offer care to ourselves, if we're really stuck. Literally send that message of gentleness and kindness and care to our own beings. We'll find that there's just more space, more softness, so then we have the capacity to be fully with what's there and to be with another being. Now, I've been talking about different forms of aversion. The fear and hatred and anger, one form of aversion that we sometimes don't notice as such is boredom. Boredom is don't like it as it is, want something different. And it's subtle, but it's a real flag of us not having engaged with this moment. So working with boredom, we do the same way as any other aversion. Note it, ah, bored. And then feel in the body, what's it like? What's the energy of boredom like? As I mentioned, when there's aversion, our reflex is to push it away, to go do something to get away from it. So it's really to stay put. Now, sometimes it takes shape as numbness. You know, when there's a lot of fear or anger or grief, we'll numb it out. So all we're aware of is numbness. And there's a wonderful question that I've, I talk about in here a lot that I find very useful when there's this vague, disquiet feeling of fear or numbness, is what is asking for attention? What's asking for acceptance? So these are skillful means. The basic practice, notice it and be with it fully. The skillful means redirect your attention if you need to, inquire and sense what's underneath if that's helpful. With aversion, because there is such a tendency to recoil, it takes a kind of commitment or willingness. The Tibetans uh, describe it really beautiful in Tunglin, where they're inviting and breathing in what's there. And the only thing that allows us to do that is if we really trust that in the breathing in, in the opening to, we open to our true nature. We become the space of awareness. We become the space of heart that can be with anything. The very practice of being with what's difficult opens us more fully to who we are. Desire or craving aversion the third sloth and torpor which is something we all know what it's like is this heaviness sleepiness laziness it can creep in like little tendrils of fog we can be sitting and then all of a sudden we find this dullness sets in foggy lost ways to work with it the most basic get interested what is it like to fall asleep what is this energy like to try to feel it from the inside. Notice the fuzziness and the pressure of the eyes and the heaviness at the chest. Notice what you can. But because it's a difficult energy, like the very nature of paying attention requires some alertness, there's also some skillful means I'd like to mention, which some of you are familiar with and really make a difference. One of them, we sit up a little taller and straighter. Open your eyes. Don't try sitting with your eyes closed if you're real sleepy, because that's a setup, you know. Some people stand up, and that's quite fine too. Especially you'll see at the longer retreats, in the sittings after lunch, half the room is sometimes standing up, and it's harder to fall asleep, you know. So that's what we do. Eyes open, take a few deep breaths. It helps to listen to sound when you're sleepy. Because what sound does is it opens up the space of awareness and it brings you back fully in an oriented way to being here now. You can't quite be as dreamy and drifting. But it takes resolution. You know, it is, When we get sleepy, we lose our intentionality to be here. So it takes this, yeah, I really want to be here. Resoluteness, but not judgment. Then there's restlessness, this discomfort which is really hard to be with. Any of you that are majoring in restlessness know you just want to jump out of your body and run and be anywhere else but sitting here now, right? So interestingly, the guidelines in working with restlessness are to try to get as still as you can as precise in your posture as you can. In fact, do the opposite of what you want to do, which is to move any which way. To really get still, and then pay attention, but give it a lot of room, because restlessness is a big energy. Not to judge it. The beauty of learning to work with restlessness is, we actually move through our life very restless. We're always kind of leaning into doing this and that and uncomfortable with how it is now and very reactive and pacing and moving and busy. And working with restlessness teaches us how to find that still place within it and not be so much subjected to always being yanked around. We don't have to keep running. We can find that we can tolerate it. It's said, if you feel restless, say, okay, take me, let me die of restlessness. But just stay there, see what it's like. The fifth of the areas is doubt. And doubt's a really important one to talk about because in terms of spiritual practice, it comes up really big at the beginning because meditation seems so hard. Being present seems like the hardest thing in the world. We sit here and our minds are wandering all over the place, and there's this thought of, well, I'm the only one in here that's really not doing this, you know, I'm the, you know? You can see it at retreats where everybody's sitting very, very still and very straight, and there can really be this sense that I'm the one schmuck in the whole room that's just like fantasizing about this and planning that. Not true. It's the nature of mind to be busy and be all over the place. And to get caught and identified in doubt, what it does is it undermines our confidence or in our capacity to keep practicing. So the very thing that would help to wake us up, which is to stay put, pay attention, see doubt as a chain of words and sounds and sensations in the body, instead of doing that, if we believe it, we exit. The antidote that the Buddha taught with doubt Come firmly, fully, gently, truly back here and now to this moment. What's it like this moment? Feel your body. Be here. He also taught several skillful means. You'll see with each of these, the basic teaching, mindfulness, compassion. Then these skillful means. When doubtful, read inspiring things. Listen to tapes that are inspiring. Talk to people that you know help to reconnect you with a bigger picture, a truer picture of what's happening. In one one of the guidelines he gave, the Buddha gave, was to bring to mind a being that you know believes in you, loves you, trusts you, and feel that trust and that love and that belief. And it helps to reconnect with your own trust in your own being. This is a story that if I brought it, Let's see. Next time. <laughs> when we look at doubt and really pay attention, it reveals itself in the same way as the other forces do as impermanent and impersonal. It's just an energy that comes through these bodies. And one of the kind of an interesting way you can play with it is when you're fi- filled with it, filled with doubt or fear or whatever, to imagine that it's happening inside the person that's sitting in front of you, just for a moment. It's an interesting twist, because it wakes us up to this sense that it's not my doubt, it's just the doubt. Thema Chodron describes the spiritual path as not going up a mountain to some great transcendent place and leaving behind all the fears and the doubts and so on, but rather that the mountain is pointing downward. I'll read you from her. She says, rather than transcending, we move towards the turbulence, the fear, the hurt. We jump into it, we slide into it, we tiptoe into it. We explore the reality and unpredictability of insecurity and pain, and we try not to push it away. If it takes years, if it takes lifetimes, we let be as it is. At our own pace, without speed or aggression, we move down and down and down. With us move millions of others, our companions in awakening from fear. At the bottom we discover water, the healing water of bodhicitta, which is the awakened heart. Right down there, in the thick of things, we discover the love that will not die. Another way of saying that is we find the way to take the one seat. For those of you that were here last week, that in the midst of it all we find the way to sit down and be fully here with our heart open our awareness our mindfulness fully engaged we sit in the midst of all experience and that way and only that way can we touch the beauty and the mystery and the sorrow and the enormous love that's possible in this life The Tibetans have an image of the lotus, you know, the lotus of awakening, and it's described that the lotus blooms out of the mud-banks of passions. Isn't that great news? (laughs) Out of the mud-banks of passions, this lotus of awakening blooms. And so it is that we all have these different forces, these universal forces, we all have wanting mind, fearing mind, we have hatred we have anger, doubt sleepiness, all the different forces and it's not the path to try to make them go away but rather when anything arises to go oh, and bow and respect this too as the grounds or the mud banks of our being that with wise attention can awaken our hearts and help us to become free so Tonight, in reviewing this, I gave a lot of you know, the basic practice of mindfulness and a lot of the skillful means, the different ways of getting a little more distance or diverting our attention or sitting up. It's always important to come back to the basics. This is a little story for the closing what are we going to do said baby tiger to mama tiger in the jungle here comes a hunter and he has five rifles three special sighting scopes and devices to allow him to see in the dark hush answered mama tiger and she taught her cub how to sneak up from behind and pounce the hunter was never heard of again all of which goes to prove that technology may be fine but it will never be a substitute for a good basic education Now the message is not to um, sneak around and pounce as much as um, <laughs> come back to presence. You know there are many ways to adjust and maneuver and manipulate our experience, and there's liberation and freedom possible when we stay put, bow to what's here, and really just simply feel it with a caring and wakeful heart. So I'll end with that, and we you would like to just stretch your legs for a few moments and then we'll sit a bit and see what arises and work with what arises in these ways. So, coming into sitting posture. And just take a few full breaths, bringing yourself into your body, feeling the life within. And for this sitting, let the senses be open and awake. Right from the start, awake, embodied, feeling the sensations of aliveness in the sitting posture it helps to just relax a little let go, sit down into your body and just feel what's there feeling your heart whatever emotion or mood might be with you Letting the awareness be open, including sound, space around you. Sensing all that arises or appears as arising in a very open, relaxed, easy space of mind. Waves on the ocean. Let the breath be a place to rest, bringing mindfulness to the breath. But if something else strong arises, any of these forces we've been describing tonight, any experience, pleasant or unpleasant, that calls your attention, letting go of the breath and opening to experience what arises, bowing to it, letting it express and unfold itself, feeling what it's like, noticing how it changes. Noticing if you are in thought forms that that's happening. Noting it and then opening back into the moment, sensing what's true. If there's wanting or fearing, excitement, peace, sleepiness, whatever is there, just to receive it with an open, clear attention with kindness, noticing what's true this moment and this moment, intimate with your experience letting go of thoughts opening to touch the fullness of this moment with your heart with a wakeful mind